0: This is episode number three hundred eighty six with Bryce Alderson and Melissa Vong of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating
1: exploration of human potential. Now, 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 the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: Hey guys, Nathan here. Hope you really enjoy the upcoming episode with today's founder. Now, before we dive in, I just wanted to share something really exciting we're doing at Founder right now. Now, as some of you guys may know, we've been busy building some pretty amazing online programs that can help you start or grow any business on our online educational platform. We get serious weapons to come in and teach for us. These are people that have done it before multiple times. So why am I telling you this? Well, one of the requests that we've been frequently getting is for us to produce more content on how to sell and start a business on Amazon. And I'm genuinely really excited to let you guys know we've had an incredible instructor teach on our platform. We're just about to launch this program. Her name's Melissa Vong, and she's teaching our latest free training on how to sell on Amazon in 2021. Now, she's built multiple multi-million dollar Amazon brands. She's made well over $20 million on Amazon, and she's put together this incredible workshop where she's going to show you exactly how she finds hot products on Amazon and how to get your business absolutely crushing on Amazon. So if you want to know how people are doing this, and if you're a first-time founder, that you want to know how to use Amazon, then please go ahead and sign up to founder.com forward slash Amazon training to get on the VIP wait list for this new incredible program that's launching soon. All right, guys, it's founder.com forward slash Amazon training. All right, now let's jump to the show. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to go deep on how Melissa Vong and Bryce Alderson built and eventually exited their multi-million dollar e-commerce brand, Orphic Nutrition. Now, Orphic Nutrition is a supplement and vitamin brand that Melissa and Bryce scaled mainly through Amazon FBA and eventually sold that earlier this year. So if you want to know exactly how to master selling on Amazon well, we've got some incredible tips and how to prepare for like an uh, eventual exit perhaps, then please welcome to the podcast, Melissa Vong and Bryce Alderson. All right, now let's jump in the shot. All right, welcome guys. So the first question that we ask everyone that comes on is how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? We'll start with Bryce first.
1: Yeah, so uh, my background was i mean i was born in kitchen waterloo and so i went or knew melissa from uh, high school days actually um and then i moved away to vancouver and i played soccer out there for five years in vancouver with the whitecaps and then a year in germany um and when i stopped playing because i had a bad injury and I, I moved back home me and melissa had always kind of kept in touch over that that period um and when i got back home we sat down and, and had a cup of coffee and kind of caught up on, on what she was working on and kind of what i was thinking next and stuff and um, that's actually how Orphic was kind of born was uh, when we met, met up and that's how I got started in this, this space with Melissa.
0: And uh, Melissa, maybe you could give us a short intro. I know we've interviewed you before, but for those that are not familiar with your story.
2: Yeah. So my background was actually in car sales. Uh, so I've been working, selling cars. I actually moved to the big city in Toronto was selling for BMW, lived in like a tiny 600-square-foot apartment condo downtown. And for me, that was like, oh, taking a big leap into, you know, big city life. Like, I thought that this was my career path. And I thought one day I'd become like sales manager, maybe. Um, So while I was working at BMW, that's when I started my first brand, which was Nanskara, botanical skincare company. Um, And it was kind of more of like a passion project at the time. And about two years into, you know, starting that brand, that's when me and Bryce had a conversation. Like, like you said, we ended up catching up over coffee. Um, he had gotten back to Kitchener, which is our hometown. So it was really, really nice just catching up with an old friend. And uh, little did we know, did that, you know, when coffee uh, Meetup would turn into a baby, um, <laughs> AKA Orphic Nutrition. So, you know, with Bryce's uh, amazing expertise and background in sports nutrition, and I had been selling on Amazon for a little bit, then uh, we figured, you know, we'd merge our our knowledge and skill sets and start a company together.
0: Yeah, love it. So, you guys have had a ton of success on Amazon um, with Orphic, and I know you guys are doing some other brands as well. Um, I'm curious, kind of like how did you both identify in each other that there was a complementary skill set?
1: I mean, I'll start obviously coming. So, coming back from soccer, I got into business right away. I actually got into the restaurant industry. So, I purchased a restaurant and had kind of ups and downs there um, and was looking for something a little bit more scalable, something online. Um, and I, I knew what Mel was doing um, in, the, in the e-commerce space. And it was something that I was hoping to explore. And so, yeah, when we originally sat down, um, it was just kind of to pick her brains and, and, and get some, some thought from her. Um, obviously, I knew that it would be fantastic to be in business with Mel or partner with Mel on it, given the, the success that she had had with her original brand. Um, I can't speak for Mel, maybe what she, <laughs> what she saw with me, but um, that was my thought process at least, as I was really interested in kind of what she was doing. Um, and then obviously, uh, when we kind of had the opportunity to go into the dietary supplement space, um, it was very interesting for me because a lot of the products that we sold with Orphic, like fish oil and glucosamine and turmeric, I took all of those um, when I was playing as an athlete. So it was a natural sort of interest for me or fit for me. And then um, bringing that into like the e-commerce space with, with Mel was like a no-brainer.
2: Yeah, and to add on to that, obviously, we would known each other for quite some time, obviously, back in high school, we had similar mutual friends, and had seen each other, you know, at parties and stuff like that, um, but just, you know, something for me that stood out was Bryce is just one of those super motivated, you know, um, amazing pe- individuals, and he, you know, went off to play uh, professional soccer. And I always admired his work ethic. The fact that, you know, he spent so much of his days, it really takes discipline to be a professional athlete. And, you know, everyone, that I knew always admired the work ethic that he had. So I think that, you know, naturally, you know, working with people that are hardworking and motivate you and uh, we even lived together at some point uh, while we were building up Orphic and, you know, he was always up at like seven in the morning and I'm like, damn, this guy is like, he's on it. (laughs) And, you know, being around people like that is just truly motivating. And it's really awesome to see how far he's come even from when we first had reconnected.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Because, um, like, I think a lot of people they do have co-founders or they find partners, and it's hard to identify, um, you know, those co-founders or who would be a good fit. And one of the like the biggest like reasons that that companies fail is because partnerships don't work out. So it's always great to hear kind of how you guys met, how it all came together. So I'm just I would love to have a follow up question, Bryce. You know. How would you fall into the restaurant business and, you know, h- how did it prepare you for what was next working with Melissa in the e-com space?
1: Yeah, I think I wish I had a better answer for it. I think getting out of sport, um, my whole life, I was completely solely focused on sport and um, definitely thought that that would be my entire career path. Um, I moved up pretty quickly in the, in the ranks uh, as a kid kid and at you know 17 I was like captaining the team and the under 17 woke up and then things didn't really work out from a career standpoint that well in Vancouver and I made the move to Germany. And so getting out of the game, I was kind of looking for okay, what would be next? Um but I had like a childhood friend and and part of the time and we decided to get into that business together. And we didn't it's not that we knew a lot about it. We just were looking for some outlet or something to kind of put time and and effort into and um we landed on that. Um I think it was it was an amazing learning experience. And when I look back, I think it was it was uh, kind of um, on-the-fly education, so to speak, because it was sort of sink or swim um, where you dove into that and then had to make it work and had to figure it out. And I think that um, took a lot from that and, and learned a lot from that, um, that obviously I was able to apply later with Morphic uh, with and with a different different business model, but a lot of the same um, principles and similarities.
0: Yeah, interesting. And also I'd love to talk to your experience as well, just like as a pro athlete, right? Like Melissa said something interesting you're up at 7 a.m. Like, do you think, um, you know, that prepared you? Kind of like you have, a, a, I guess, a strong sense of discipline, would you say? or?
1: Yeah, I think sport and, and business have a lot of similarities. And I think there's a few things. For one, I think the discipline is is sort of driven home. And that's obviously such an important facet or, or characteristic to have, not just in sport, but in business. I also think the other thing that I think uh, kind of prepares you well is that, in sport, it's very objective and nobody cares about um, sort of the work or the effort that you put into it. It doesn't matter. And that's, I think, very much how business works, right? Like if you are trying to try out for a team, it doesn't matter how many hours you practice or how hard you've worked. What matters is how good you are, how well you can perform. And that's how the market works, right? If, if, if you bring a product to the marketplace, it doesn't matter if you spend 10,000, 100,000 hours, a million hours working on this product, or perfecting it. What matters is the merit and whether whether it's good enough. And so I think that's like a very strong similarity too that I think athletes kind of have is they know that you have to be disciplined. The process matters, but that really it's the end result. And and that's what matters. Um, and, and I think that's, again, another good characteristic or, or correlates well between sport and business.
0: Yeah, I love it. Awesome. So let's jump in. Like, can you tell us a little bit about the Orphic Nutrition story? So you guys started that company we ended up selling it we can't talk about the numbers how much you sold it for but you know a really strong outcome uh, and that was in the space of about three years so um, can you tell us about the early stages of getting this product off the ground and exactly yeah a little bit more detail
2: yeah I mean when we first started Orphic we didn't we kind of had no idea on what category um, to really sell in we had no idea what products we wanted to start with But you know, my philosophy is still what you know, and uh, with Bryce's you know expertise with sports nutrition, and obviously being an athlete, you know, he takes uh, supplements regularly from a performance standpoint, and then just me as an entrepreneur as well. You know, we we take things that help supplement uh, because you know we forget to eat sometimes when you're working long hours, and sometimes you need to supplement those things. Uh, So I always like to sell things that you know I would use or would you know, be comfortable with friends or family using something that I can put my, my, uh, I, I can back because I've used it before. Right. So that's where supplements came to mind. Um, and obviously when you know about something, you don't have to re-educate yourself. It becomes a lot easier and more second nature to be able to market it, to sell it, to, you know, to, to position it on Amazon. And you think of all these different angles, and ways that you can position a product because you're ultimately the end user as well. So I think that was really interesting. And obviously, you know, we landed on the supplement space and we kind of did a deeper dive into, okay, what core products do we want to launch and what problems we really want to solve with our products. And that's when we, you know, we decided to launch three products out of the gate Uh, I believe it was the Garcinia Cambogia, CLA, and apple cider vinegar capsules. Um, So all targeting, you know, main key points like uh, with energy boosting, especially. Well, for me, it's it's harder for me to get up in the morning. I'm not like Bryce getting up at seven (laughs) in the morning, but you know, it it gives me a little bit of a kick (laughs) in the morning. So looking at products that we can use in our own daily lives um, was super important, but also you know, we still needed to sell products that people actually wanted. And that's where validating these products by doing product research was super important in the early days.
1: I think also for us, one thing that helped from a from a very like tactical standpoint, for anyone who's, who's watching and thinking, okay, well, how did you go from, from zero starting? It was, it was a very, I call it like hand-to-hand combat approach. We were using micro-influencers on Instagram aggressively. Um, and I remember the time literally pulling up all of the gyms in the United States. So the LA Fitness, uh, the Crunch, the Equinox, et cetera, pulling up all their locations and then going to Instagram, you have the search features. So we would search the different gym locations one by one, find people that were like basically posting photos at each of those gyms. Um, Cause obviously most of the people that are tagging those were in some way, shape or form trying to, I don't want to say cement themselves an influencer, but were at least you know dipping their toes in that space. And so we're able to reach out to those people and a lot of them being micro influencers, for them getting free product, um was a good enough deal for them right so that's kind of how we got our initial our initial reviews our initial feedback on the product a little bit of traction originally was was utilizing these micro influencers um and just doing it again like hand-to-hand combat of reaching out to all of them individually and building those relationships and shipping the product to them individually et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's another thing that i think helped us a lot in the beginning as we're kind of going from an unknown brand to start to gain traction and and gain market share
0: yeah amazing and um as mentioned, like you guys end up selling that brand, um, can you talk us through that process and how you guys came to that decision?
1: I think from when we had started, I think the plan was to move Quake, scale Quake, and then eventually exit. Um, it's you know such a fast-moving landscape um, Amazon is, and I think that if you can build something of of real value. Um, I, I think there's the the notion to sort of take chips off the table um, and then move on to the next venture. And that's kind of what we had discussed and had wanted to do. Um, we didn't really know exactly what that might look like from a timeline horizon because it very much depended on the growth trajectory of the company. Um, but it was around December of this past year, so 2020, that uh, me and Mel felt like the company was in a good position. We had basically half of 2018 under about a full 2019, and then a full 2020. So we had about two and a half years of... Um, I guess being operational and revenue, et cetera. And we thought it might be a good time to start looking into, you know, what it would look like to exit. Um, and then, I mean, Mel was, was instrumental in that. So I'll let you kind of talk through how you broached that with, with brokers and such. But that was kind of the, the, the trajectory, I guess, Was we launched in June of 2018 had built the company up over these two and a half years. And then by the end of 2020, started thinking, okay, now might be a good time to see, you know, what the, the appetite would look like. Um, we knew there was more and more interest growing in the space with the, the rise of sort of the aggregators in the industry. Um, and we had a great, great 2020, um, partially as a result of it, it was a growing brand. But the, the COVID situation um, for I think a lot of e-commerce sellers helped, helped uh, tremendously. Um, yeah, and then Mel kind of started the, the process with brokers and such.
2: Yeah, so we actually had received um, a couple like offers from aggregators or just random, you know, inbound inquiries. So we'd received like emails just basically asking, "Hey, like we're interested in buying your brand potentially." And I think that's what kind of kickstarted the whole idea on exploring, okay, what would this actually look like if we were to sell the company. So obviously we got on a couple calls with these different people that were interested. And, you know, figure it out. How did they want the deal structured? So there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of cut the cake, so to speak, where you can either have basically all cash offer or you can have like partial cash. And then, you know, part of it's tied to an earnout. Um, you can structure it with shares you know, or you can sell part of your company or a majority stake in your company. Uh, or you can sell the whole thing so it was basically trying to figure out okay what would make the most sense for us both individually and for Orphic um, as a whole so after exploring you know the couple offers that we got in the first place I figured okay well there's actually a whole list of aggregators out there that are interested in buying brands right now specifically uh, Amazon brands why don't we just go and reach out to them all directly and let them know hey You know, we have some offers that we're fielding, but we'd like to see if this is something that you're potentially interested in. So I ended up just, you know, cold calling or cold emailing all these different aggregators um, and then also brought in some of my, you know, broker friends in the industry just to kind of see, okay, what the best approach is. Obviously, like we can go direct or we can list it on a marketplace like I have done with Namaskara in the past. Um, And obviously, you know, going direct will save you on the commissions that a marketplace would take. So ended up, you know, doing the direct approach and um, basically kind of, you know, put the the offers up against each other and decided what made the most sense for us. And we received a, a really great offer. Um, and basically decided to move forward with that specific aggregator and you know, get on more calls with them, figure out what their process is for buying, what their timeline is, you know, how long does it take from you know, uh, starting conversations through due diligence to actually you know, seeing money in the bank account. So it was, it was definitely a great learning experience. I think we learned a lot during that time. Just speaking to the different aggregators and learning more about okay what is it that they're looking for what actually brings more value and increases the multiple for your brand so it was definitely a very eye-opening experience
0: yeah wow awesome thank you for sharing and um i'm curious like i i know uh you guys can't really talk about much around the the contents of uh, the sale, the numbers, all that kind of stuff. But can you kind of give for everyone watching and listening kind of context of how big Orphic Nutrition was?
2: Yeah, obviously it was very um, hush-hush around the deal because we have to sign, you know, non-disclosures, non-competes, all that fun stuff. Um, But I mean, with Orphic, it scaled up pretty quickly in our first like six, seven months. That's when we hit our first like $100,000 in a month. And then,
1: we um, in, in February. In February, we had our first um, million dollar month in February of twenty
2: twenty
1: one. For March, February and March of twenty twenty one, we did the first million dollar month. That was a huge milestone, yeah. obviously.
2: Just shy of a million. We're very, very close. Nine hundred
0: sixty something yeah, yes. thousand or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So look, really large e commerce brand on Amazon. Like, and was it like how fundamental was Amazon to? the success of this brand? And did you guys start with Amazon, then move to Shopify just for context for people?
1: Yeah, so Amazon was our main sales channel. We did 90 plus percent of our revenue was coming through Amazon. There there was a period in the the company where we were kind of chatting about um, focusing more on Shopify because I think in an ideal world, you'd have a more balanced um, revenue structure in terms of from your own website, Amazon, any other third party marketplaces. Now, for us, we knew kind of where we were going. We knew what the end goal was. And so I think had the plan for, for Melissa and I been to hold on to the company for many more years, um, potentially like forever, as I think maybe some founders are, are operating, we would have put more focus on Shopify. But for us, it was very much a, a question of, you know, best resources or best dollars spent. Um, and we were having success on the the Amazon front. So it made more sense to for us to double down on that um, and, and and spend all of our marketing dollars there and, and pour all of our resources into growing what's working, uh, as opposed to sort of trying to pivot or redirect those customers towards Shopify or pour more resources into trying to build directly DTC. Um, so that was kind of like our thought press on is that we, we have a system here that's working, let's continue this, let's scale this. Um, and that's what we ended up doing. And yeah, the majority of our, our business was was through Amazon, um, which is obviously for anyone who sells on Amazon, you know the, the trade-off is sure Amazon has large fees and, and maybe has overbearing, um, guidelines in terms of how you can interact with your customers, etc. But they're also bringing you this massive customer base um, and you have the ability to kind of get in front of all of these customers um, that Amazon's created. So it's the pros and cons, I guess, of using their marketplace.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. Can you guys talk us through kind of the early days? What were some early challenges you guys faced with Orphic in the early days of that journey on Amazon?
2: I mean, like Bryce said, we had to do a lot of, you know, combat hand-to-hand in terms of getting the first initial sales um, and promoting it directly through micro-influencers. And obviously, it wasn't, you know, a process that we had scaled at the time, but we slowly then shifted into, you know, putting systems in place. So, once we um, turn to many chat to automate a lot of that process, so, if, you know, usually it would be direct outreach. We'd go to like specific hashtags, like Bryce was saying, um, looking at uh, specific specific locations and gyms and tags in that sense and then reaching out directly on Instagram obviously you know it's it's very taxing you know messaging these people individually obviously you can start outsourcing that once you uh, start growing revenue and want to buy back some of your time uh, but once we you know made the switch to many chat like our business kind of shifted dramatically because we were able to do this at scale by mon- uh by basically Automating the whole entire process through a simple uh, chat flow. So it was really really interesting because we'd run you know Facebook ads to get the attention of new people. It wasn't like we had to go find people. People were actually finding us now, Um, and I think that making that shift definitely helped grow the business um, you know exponentially. Uh, But other challenges.
1: I mean, literally when we, were, when we were going to launch, we were going to launch and we had um, like a group or an agency, if you will, that specialized in uh, helping to launch products in Amazon. And we had inventory on the way to Amazon. And this was sort of our plan. This is what we we're going to do. And it was like a few days but as the inventory was in transit, that basically that group was just like shut down. It was like Amazon had kind of gotten wise to it. It was no longer going to be accepted in terms of service, um, couldn't use it. And so we were kind of like back to the drawing board from a marketing perspective Uh, just a few days before basic inventory was supposed to arrive and supposed to launch. So, I mean, obviously that's stressful and not a, not a great situation. Uh, If you have sort of a plan in place, you think you're going to go this direction. And then a few days before launch, it's like, no, you can't do that anymore. And it was back to square one for us. Um, that's when we kind of pivoted and and we we utilized Instagram and the the influencers and everything else that we we had discussed, which eventually grew into our many chat strategy for for scaling it and being able to automate all of those conversations. Um, but yeah, as far as hurdles, I remember like losing sleep over that like just a few days before we we're supposed to launch, and now it's like everything that we had planned is out the window, we can't do it. Um, yes yeah, so we we had to pivot and pivot
2: quickly yeah cuz just before that i had launched a new product for namaskara as well and that's how we slowly realized that like amazon was cracking down on i guess incentivized reviews um, and this is when you know we had a bunch of influencers that were going to to purchase the product through this agency basically um, and because the reviews were coming in too quickly for the new product that we'd launch basically amazon stopped the ability to get reviews on that product. So after we had like 20 reviews on it, it was like, nope, you can't leave reviews anymore on this listing. So it's under review for suspicious activity. And I was like, oh shit, okay, what's going on here? Um, so Amazon started cracking down on some of these, you know, different, um, I guess, services that were being offered in the Amazon space and quickly had to pivot. Um, they actually wiped all the reviews after, after review. Um, of the the listing itself so that product was basically something I just wanted to liquidate quickly and then uh, use it as you know inventory for like buy one get one deals to launch new products Um, but I didn't know how long it was going to be I guess blacklisted in a sense where I can't get reviews anymore so it was you know it was a a, definitely a learning experience and we had to pivot uh, based on that.
0: And can you guys talk me through kind of the product development side of things because when you get into like i guess the nutrition space is that kind of scary like um what did the trial and error look like there
1: um so we did for, for transparency all of the manufacturers that we use um they dealt with all like the third-party testing um so before anyone thinks that melissa and i are like in our basement you know <laughs> formulating these things that's not the case i, I promise um so yeah we, we had great manufacturing partners Um, all of which would provide all the the, the certificate of analysis, the third-party lab tests, um, et cetera. So we always knew exactly what was in it. It was always FDA approved, et cetera. So we never had concerns on that front. Um, And then we had, yeah, a couple of great manufacturing partners that um, we were able to go back and forth with to adjust formulations. And we knew okay, we wanna do a fat burner, for example, we know we wanna have garsini Cambodian, we know we wanna have raspberry ketone, we know we wanna have green coffee bean extract. And, and we would work with them to, to come up with the formulation and they have doctors and such on, on, on their end um, to kind of advise us on that and, and to adjust and to you know, make this one more potent and increase the dosage on this and, and kind of play around with it and go back and forth. Um, so yeah, we, we had great partners on, on that front as far as the product development part goes. Um, and then, yeah, obviously there's the, the product research that would go into it in terms of what we saw was, was doing well, or was trending up on Amazon, it was garnering more interest. Um, and then we would look at, okay, if this is becoming more and more popular, how can we bring basically the, the best version of that product, the best formulation of that product um, at the best price point. And that's kind of what we always focused on is how can we get the best formula of the market at the best price point? Cause in the end, at the end of the day, that's what the, the
0: customer wants. Yeah, I see. And. Um... I'm curious as well, like, you had experience, Melissa, you know, selling on Amazon, you teamed up with Bryce. Like, what was your approach with Orphic? How was it different or was it different?
2: Yeah, obviously, since we had more of an understanding of how to sell on Amazon, like a trial and error uh, on my own end, um, being able to apply everything that I kind of learned to Orphic, it allowed us to scale up a lot more quickly, I think. And uh, even just launching it with like three products out of the gate, where most Amazon sellers would start with one product and kind of grow their catalog that way. But we wanted to go ahead with, you know, full steam ahead and launch a full-out catalog. And our our main goal was to, you know, by the end of the year, hopefully sell like 10 products. Um, So we grew Orphic pretty quickly to, I think, like 16 SKUs. Um, and also had like 10 more down the pipeline just before we were planning to sell. So even if we didn't get, you know, a number that we were happy with, we were you know, happy with going ahead and launching the next 10 uh, products that we had in mind. But yeah, it was, it was definitely, you know, a good learning experience with Namskara and being able to, as you're in the industry, surround yourself with more people that are Amazon sellers and more industry specific experts by going to like these different events. Like we ended up going to seller con together. Um, and because we were, you know, doing uh, six figures a month at the time, you know, we got invited to like the six figure a month, I guess, um, group. So they basically verify our sales and only people who are doing over six figures a month can join this room and basically share all your top secrets. Uh, what's working for you. So that was really cool.
0: Mm, interesting. And I'm curious as well, kind of like, to stand out in the Amazon space um, for, for the brand, what, how did you guys nail the messaging?
2: So when you take a look at Amazon, uh, one of the things that we do when we do like uh, competitor research is take a look at who else is selling similar products. So if you look on page one, that's a good indication on you know the top performers for that specific keyword or that specific product. And what we noticed was, you know, a lot of the supplements on Amazon were very clinical looking, white bottles, white labels, um, or craft paper. They're going for, you know, that holistic feel. Um, And a lot of it was, to be honest, not very aesthetically pleasing, Um, so we thought that there was an opportunity to do something a little bit more bold to stand out I think that's where because it also fell in line with our brand messaging obviously we're focusing on like sports nutrition so we wanted to to really drive that home in through our packaging so ended up doing you know bold colors and for each specific um, product we select you know a, a color that is kind of representation of that product like apple cider vinegar capsules obviously we had you know some red accent colors um, on the black and then some silver chrome on it so that's what kind of helped us you know stand out and then having just good quality renders that showcase our product and help us stand out even from like a uh, like a psychological point Uh, we like to do what's called a pattern interrupt so by adding things like your pills next to the bottle or like uh, adding an apple slice or something kind of in the main hero image, that's something that can help you set yourself apart. And then of course, you know, Bryce touched on just value, driving value. And one thing that we did was with our, you know, our, um, our potency, we'd increase them or per serving size. And then that was something that we could utilize for our marketing.
1: I think, I think another thing that we did a lot in the beginning, which was good is, um, it's, it's no longer up. So it's a little bit more difficult now. You have to do it through Amazon. But we're using a platform called Splitly, which allows you to split test. So what we would do is basically we were we were guaranteed that we mathematically had the best listing because we would split test the main image. Um, and when you split test it, you get all the data in terms of what is the click-through rate, what is the conversion rate, what is the page view percentage, et cetera. So you could split test your different image. So you know, when me and Melissa are sitting there like, which one do you like more? As a you know, a data set of two people it's not exactly, um, you know, the most accurate, it's two objective or subjective opinions of an image. So we would split test everything from the main image. We would split test the title. We would split test. Does it do better with the brand name in front versus not we would split test the price. So we would do all these things so that we could kind of mathematically make sure that we're presenting our listing in the best way. Um, I think that along with all the other things Melissa mentioned helped, helped a lot.
0: Yeah. Love it. Um, I'm also really curious when it comes to kind of, you you mentioned something Bryce around the customer journey you said with Amazon, you know, obviously um, they have certain rules around that. And, and, and like, you don't really get to own that customer journey. How how do you guys combat that?
2: There are, you know, tools that um, we've kind of, or systems that we implemented like funnels in order to capture our customers emails. So obviously we had like, not really product inserts, but they were more like stickers on our bottle that kind of drove them to a specific landing page. And that's how we were able to capture them as our own customers to then remarket to. Um, And then we also, you know, there's tools out there where you can actually scrape some of Amazon's data. It's not 100% accurate, but it will basically uh, pull the real customer email because you know how Amazon has like their masked emails on on their messaging platforms so you really don't know who you're emailing uh, but there's tools that you can use like managed by stats was one that we had used in the past um, to scrape basically the emails of those customers and then you can create you know um, look like audiences based on it it wasn't like we could email them directly because obviously that's against terms of service and Uh, That's also, you know, you're not allowed to email people that didn't give you permission to email them. So you have to find creative ways to get in front of them. And by creating lookalike audiences on Facebook, that definitely helped as well. So like there are different things that you can do to try and tap into that customer base. Um, But I think that, you know, just... Uh, embracing Amazon's platform and the tools that they have to offer, like their subscribe and save, for example, just simply by utilizing subscribe and save, we had like over 3000 people subscribed who would regular order, uh, who would regularly order products every month. And that's guaranteed, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 a month in revenue just from those subscribe and save customers. And then it also helped with, you know, our reorder rate. So we had customers, about 46% of our customers were, reoccurring repeat customers just through Amazon's platform alone and that was huge for us.
0: Yeah, wow, that's massive. Okay, that's awesome. Um, love to talk about kind of the logistics experience with Amazon because I know for some people looking out like Amazon FBA, incredible way to build a business. Um, as we know, we've got you to teach an incredible program on our platform for us Melissa sharing all your experiences but I'd love to hear from Bryce kind of like as first timer coming into Amazon uh, the logistics side can be perceived as a little bit daunting um, what was your experience there can you talk to us kind of like your your like I guess what did the process look like for you and and what surprised you yeah
1: I think from a logistics standpoint I think first and foremost I think orbit Orphic- um, we're we're quite lucky, and we had quite a streamlined um, setup because all of our manufacturers were in the United States. So we automatically had the benefit of not dealing overseas, especially with with China um, and the logistical challenges that come with with managing like a multi tier or multi-nate multinational um, supply chain. So we were able to go directly just to the manufacturer. When the when the order was finished, we would ship from the United States warehouse into Amazon. So I think automatically that was a huge advantage to us from a logistics standpoint. Um, you know, Amazon also implemented inventory restock limits at a later date, which made it challenging that you had to really be, you know, very calculated in terms of what you're setting in and what capacity. Um, yeah, I would say logistically, the, the biggest headache was the inventory management piece because you have this, this uh, situation with Amazon where especially as you're launching products, when it's a newer product, it has a very, it's very sensitive, is, is maybe the best word for it, where it can be garnering attention quickly and all of a sudden you get a bestseller badge or you get the Amazon's choice badge, and inventory can 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 fly sky high. And you're always trying to balance this. You never want to run out of stock because that's you know number one number one on the list of things not to do. But the inverse of that is you also don't want to get stuck with a huge PO um, and have inventory sitting. So if it starts to garner attention and you put in a PO for 20,000 units or something of that nature, and all of a sudden sales kind of tail off, you lose a badge, maybe the listing goes out of stock for a week or two, loses rank, whatever happens, and then you're stuck on that inventory. So I think that was the hardest part was managing more like the inventory management piece. Maybe again, because we didn't have... Uh, shipping from overseas involved so we weren't trying to balance you know shipping bottles from China or labels from India or outsourcing other other places. So I would say just the actual inventory restock and, and, and keeping in stock and managing that um, also from a cash flow perspective is is difficult because one of the the caveats of a growing business, especially obviously in physical products, it's amazing that your revenues are, are growing but with that your purchase orders are growing. And because Amazon always keeps you on a sort of unavailable balance, as they hold that money in a sort of escrow in case the customer returns it, from the day you sell it, you're not really getting paid until you know 45 days later, call it. So if you have to pay for the inventory on day one, and then it takes them six weeks to manufacture it, and then you know you ship it in, you sell it, you have to wait another six weeks. You're sort of 90 days or three months behind um, on a cash flow perspective from when you order versus when you get paid. So as a as a growing company. Every time you order, you need to order more, but you're on a lag because your cash flow hasn't caught up yet. So I think that was another difficult part is to manage the cash flow piece of it to make sure that you're not going on a stock um, and to make sure that you have enough enough cash on hand to fulfill purchase orders.
0: Yeah, I see. Interesting. And um, like we know that Amazon is massive. Amazon is a huge marketplace. Um, I'd love to talk to kind of the elephant in the room. Anyone's watching this, from your guys' perspective, is it too competitive... Coming into 2020, uh, 2022, like, you know, what would your guys take?
1: The way I look at it, at least, is I don't necessarily think of something from a, from a standpoint of, is it too competitive? Because I think the more competitive something is, the way I look at it is, therefore, the more expensive it'll be to compete in that category. So I think it really comes down to, okay, what is somebody's budget? So if you said, if somebody said, okay, I have, you know, $3,000 and I, I want to start on Amazon, I want to sell, I don't know, a testosterone booster. I would then say it's too competitive for that budget. So that's the way that I look at at least. I don't know, Melissa, for myself, it's each, as the categories continue to become more and more competitive, um, as more and more money flows into these spaces, like we've talked about, as aggregators continue to snatch up brands and then they compete against each other on bigger budgets, backed by VC money, et cetera, et cetera, it'll continue to become more competitive, which then means, from my perspective, it becomes more expensive to try to penetrate that market or try to get a piece of that market share.
2: Yeah, and I think that you make all really great points, Bryce. And just to add on to that, obviously, um, no matter what you do, there's always going to be competition, especially with Amazon. But at the same time, you also have the opportunity to compete with the larger brands on Amazon too. So it's it's really interesting. Uh, Because you can also create new markets, like there's millions and millions of products that are selling on Amazon. It's kind of, you know, naive to think that there isn't going to be some opportunity product for you to sell, because there's so many different things that people need. And you know, there's more and more people shopping online, there's more and more customers. So at the end of the day, like you still have the potential to not only position yourself better than your competitors, but maybe even create your own niche. Like, you know, some big brands, like one of our biggest competitors, Golly, they kind of paved the way for apple cider vinegar gummies. Right. And it's crazy because that wasn't actually a, like a, something that people searched for. It was something that they actually created themselves as their own Uh, subcategory of products, and then ended up translating to Amazon, obviously, all all of their ad spend was need to drive traffic to their Shopify, but then they slowly ended up trickling to Amazon, because whenever you find an ad, or whenever you're targeted by an ad, like what's the first thing that most people do is they go search on Amazon to see if they can either find a better price or a better product or, you know, something that they can actually trust, because you never know with all these drop shippers nowadays, like not fulfilling products for weeks at a time. People want to go to the source that they can actually trust, which is Amazon. So it was really interesting to see that they created their own little semi-market. Um, and then obviously recognizing these new trends and being able to position yourself early on is super um, important as well.
0: Yeah, Awesome. Um, yeah, look, from what I'm hearing from you guys, you're saying that, yes, it is competitive, but that shouldn't deter you because there's always opportunities. Um Awesome. So uh, last question before we work towards wrapping up, I'm curious just around like for anybody that's looking to sell like their business um, or their, you know, in particular their e-com business, what one piece of advice would you guys give?
1: What I would say is, um, and Melissa kind of alluded to before, I think that it's, it's a fine line between you want to prep to sell your business. And so you want to make sure that you're doing the right things and talk to a broker or talk to someone who knows the industry to make sure you do the right things to prepare your business to be sold. That being said, you should plan in your head, you should operate your business like you're not going to sell, right? Cause what you don't want to do is you don't want to get caught where you had it in your head that you are going to sell on this date you've all of a sudden kind of like slowed the wheels leaning into this, you're only focused on the exit, you know, operations are going to ship behind the scenes and there's things that are are not being put in place to continue the growth trajectory of the company. And all of a sudden you go to sell the company and now maybe you haven't gotten the offer that you wanted to, or it's gonna take longer than you expected. And if you weren't prepared, like Melissa was saying, we had in our pipeline 12 or 13 products that were about to launch, that were coming down the pipeline. And I think that was beneficial to us because it put us in a good position from a negotiating standpoint, that we didn't need to accept an offer. We knew what we were willing to take and we knew what you know what we'd walk away from. As Melissa mentioned, we walked away from two or three deals before that because we had the confidence that, no, we don't like the offer, we're confident in our business, we have everything set up to continue growing the business and if we don't get the kind of offer that we want, then we'll just continue to grow the business. As opposed to, if you maybe didn't have those things in place, you weren't certain about the growth trajectory of your company, you start to get a little bit scared and panicked, and now, you know, you're, you're, you're selling in a position that you don't really want to, but you feel under pressure to.
0: Awesome. Uh, Melissa, you, you want to add to that or anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, my piece of advice to anyone looking to potentially sell their business <clears throat> is to document everything early on. So keep organized as much as you can. Um, one way that I like to organize myself is just simply using a Google Drive. And basically for every product, make sure, you know, if you have your listing Created, have it in a Google Doc or an Excel sheet, and like literally upload all of the versions of your specific listing images. And this is all going to be super helpful when you do sell your your business because you have to basically send and provide all of this, uh, all these assets to the buyer, right? And it's going to make the transfer process a lot easier when everything's kind of documented. So literally, like all your logins and passwords have it all in one place. Uh, you can have, you know, all your purchase orders. Um, and your your invoices on a, a folder, anything related to finance. Uh, you can have it, you know, track with QuickBooks. And then I recommend hooking up uh, like a- A2X. Uh, that's something that I wish that we implemented early on to help us with our books and, you know, um, having everything financially set up for when we are ready to sell. So like, the way that things are itemized for an Amazon business might be different from a regular business because you have all these other operating expenses that are related to Amazon, like Amazon fees, Amazon storage fees, uh, the referral fees, et cetera. So like having this all itemized on um, QuickBooks is super, super important because then you don't have to you know, be scrambling when you're actually closing to then put together all these financial documents like we kind of were running around like a chicken with their head cut off, uh, trying to get everything organized.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, look, um, as I said, we'll work towards wrapping up, conscious of you guys' time. We're gonna to move to the hot seat round. Um, I'd love to hear answers from both of you individually. Uh, only a few questions, 30 second answers, okay? So the first question I have is what's one thing you wish people knew when it comes to selling on Amazon.
2: I say get a sales job, even, if, even though it's not really related to Amazon. Like the first thing that you should do is work in sales. Just understand the psychology of why people buy. It really does help translate into not just Amazon, but in all walks of life.
1: I would say that if you're starting to sell on Amazon, recognize that it's a business. Sure, people can start as a side hustle, but I think a lot of people who start as a side hustle. Don't put as much time, effort that they need to. So I would say treat it as a business.
0: What's one product or category that you think would dominate in 2022 on Amazon?
2: With a lot of people spending more time at home, I think office uh, supplies as well as pet products are, are really hot right now.
1: I was going to say, I think there's a big big demand right now for, again, when you talk about the work from home situation. I think also the working out from home. I think a lot of people are still tempted to go back to gyms. Um, you see that with some of these companies that have popped up, Peloton and Mirror, et cetera. I think that home fitness equipment will continue to be really popular. Um, and I think it'll, it'll expand that it won't just be dumbbells anymore. I think there'll be new inventions that kind of come out. Um, I'd, I'd keep an eye on that space.
0: Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who could it be and why?
1: I, I would, I would always, I've always said Gary V. I, uh, he was one of the first people that I kind of came along when I kind of was transitioning and getting into business. And, um, I listened to his like podcasts and his content almost religiously. Um, and I, I really, really like him. I always say like, cause people said before, Oh, uh, Elon Musk. And I always say like, I don't think I'm smart enough to, to get anything out of Elon Musk. It would be over my head. Um, I, I love Gary V and if I could sit down with anyone it would be him, for sure.
2: I think it'd be cool to sit down with the founding father of Amazon, our daddy, Jeff Bezos, (laughs) uh, on a rocket. (laughs) Dinner would have to be on a rocket for sure.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's a good one. Awesome. All right. Well, look, we will wrap there, guys. But thank you so much for your time. Uh, It was awesome kind of to have you on, Bryce, and kind of hear kind of how you started Orphic with Melissa and, uh, yeah, hear your side of the story. So congratulations, both of you, on all your success.
1: Uh, Thank you so
0: much.
2: Thank you so much, Ethan.